Now our dear Lord decided that it was important for us to be sanctified. In Scripture, we'll see that He sanctified days to the Lord. For example, the seventh day. He consecrated things like places, the Holy of Holies, for example. And then it's very clear from Scripture that He sanctified people. The tribe of uh, Levites were sanctified by the Lord. In the New Testament, God calls us a sanctified people, a royal priesthood. God's will is for us to be sanctified. It means set apart for a sacred purpose. If you hear that word in the days to come or if somebody ever asks you, are you sanctified? You just say, absolutely, I have been sanctified. I am being sanctified and I will be sanctified. We are set apart for a wonderful purpose. But not only is it something that is the Lord's will, it is the basis for all answered prayer. A sanctified person is surely going to get their prayers answered in a more greater fashion than those that are not. It is the basis for power and ministry. It is sanctification that strengthens relationships. It is the foundation for all happiness. A sanctified life is a happy life. And so this morning, we're going to study the Word, and we're going to find out in our final installment here on sanctification, speaking about Bible study. You've got to love the Reader's Digest. They have the best stories. This is a story from a lady in Iowa, church member. Here's her little story. Before beginning the service, our pastor read aloud from a note. He had been handed just moments earlier, you know, one of those little handwritten notes. It says here that, the pastor speaking, it says here that I should announce that there'll be no BS tomorrow morning, B period, S period. And he said, as he tucked the piece of paper into his pocket and said, I'm hoping they mean Bible study. <laughs> there you go. Well, we're going to have Bible study today, amen? And uh, let's ask God for his strength. Father, we thank you today. We thank you that what we give here from your word is certainly true and nothing but the truth. And we praise you, God, for this great uh, series reminding us how important it is to be sanctified in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you would, please. And here we use the King James Version here, as you know, but uh, to keep us all on the same page. So let's read uh, together 2 Timothy 2, verse 21. Let's read it out loud. You can either read from the PowerPoint here or get your Bible open to that. All right, ready, begin. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. If you read the context, and by the way, that is one of the great rules for interpretation, as the old navigators would say, fore and aft, always read before and always read after. It'll give you a consensus of what the verse is saying. If you read the consensus there, you'll find out that God is saying His church is like a big old house. And when the householder goes into that house, he's going to look for a vessel, a cup. Now, when I go to look for a cup, I don't look for a cup that's dirty. I don't look for a cup that's, you know, way down here, way up there. I want it available. I don't want it dirty, and I certainly don't want a cracked cup. 
You know, God's people are a vessel of honor. We're supposed to be ready for the master's use or meat as the Old Testament, or excuse me, as the Old English way of saying it is. Our campus, as you know, is still under construction. Because it's under construction, naturally so, there's some unfinished projects showing, especially recently as we've had some um, underground work to do. Here and there, it becomes unsightly, but it's clear, at least this much, that there is a work in progress. Those that are building are committed to bringing this building, bringing this campus into conformity with a blueprint. In a like way, all of us are a building under construction. And as we go along in life, there's going to be some unsightly things about this building of ours. But thank the Lord, we are being worked on by the chief superintendent, and he has a blueprint, and that is the Word of God. He is sanctifying us. We are under construction. Now, let's do a little bit of review quickly, and then we'll, we have a lot to cover today. And by the way, because we have so much to cover, uh, you have little outlines, paper outlines there. If you want to use the app, you can, and uh, you can see that on the back of the worship folder, how to get that. You can fill that out as we go along, and then email your notes back to yourself. What would be the focus of sanctification? The focus is Jesus. You'd say, well, how do I be sanctified? Well, just keep your eyes on Jesus, John chapter 17, and you'll be sanctified. And then we found out from Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 that it's God's will that the whole man be sanctified. Some people think, well, the only thing God's concerned about is my spiritual life. No, he's concerned about our mental life. He's even concerned about our physical life. God says uh, it's good to have a sanctified spirit, but you also need to have a sanctified mind. And your body, it's the only body you'll ever get, so take care of it. It is the house of your spirit. Now, then we talked about why we should be sanctified. And this amazing passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, the reasons behind sanctification. And one of the things we learned is that God wants us to redeem anything that's good for his use. Now, there may be a time to just totally set something aside, but for the most part, everything that we have can be used for God. I, I use the illustration of an iPhone. I know there's a lot of abuses in the internet, a lot of abuses with uh, getting on the line, but the fact is we can also use it for good. We can sanctify it. If it's sanctified, then we can do something good with it. And I think that leads us really in today. So we've talked about what sanctification is. Then we talked about the why. Today, how? What are the nuts and bolts of sanctification? Thankfully, we have this wonderful passage that very clearly lays it out for us. Let's go to 1 Timothy 4, if you would, please. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 4. Now, um, let's read the verse and I'll give you the context. In fact, uh, let's read it out loud, all right? Verse 4 and 5 together. Ready, begin. For every creature of God is good, nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving. And notice verse 5 now together. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now the Holy Spirit tells us that in the last days, 
And uh, someone asked me, what are the last days? Are we in the last days? I said, absolutely. But the scripture says that John said, these are the last days. So the truth is, it is the last ages. Of all the ages, this is the last segment of time. And these certainly, we are closer to the return of Christ than we've ever been. And here's what the Holy Spirit through Paul said. He said, here is one of the ways you can know the last days are here. And that is that people will depart from a biblical faith. And so, by the way, anybody who believes that we're just going to get better and better and bring the kingdom of God is totally misunderstanding Scripture. In fact, it is a constant apostasy. That doesn't mean there can't be revival. It doesn't, doesn't mean there can't be just wonderful moves of God. But it just means that overall, we are moving towards this anti-biblical faith. Two of the things that Paul mentions here in this passage is this. One of them is people are going to get all screwed up about marriage. They're going to just, if you'll read the context, you'll say they forbid people to marry or they do this or that about marriage. And the second thing is there's going to be all kinds of weird rules about diets. So that's two of the indicators that we're in the last days. Now, very specifically, um, he said, what is a sanctified marriage then? Or how do you sanctify your food and the drink that you have? How do you know if it's sanctified or not? And so here in this verse, he gives two rules, very clear rules. Number one, check the Bible. How do you know something's sanctified? Just check Scripture, which requires effort. It's not just going to pop into your head. It's not going to just occur to you, although because of your effort to maybe be in a service like this, or maybe you study the Bible. Paul told Timothy, for example, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing Scripture. Rightly dividing. That word means cutting straight. And if you've ever tried to cut straight a board, it is a lot harder than it seems. Cutting straight takes effort. Study, study, and so check the Bible out. And the example that he gave, one of the examples, was that about biblical marriage. Now, biblical marriage is honorable, it says in Hebrew. It is absolutely the honorable thing to do, but not all marriage is honorable. Just because a person is married doesn't mean it's an honorable marriage. Among those are same-sex marriages. Now, the, uh, our legal society, uh, with all their good intentions, or perhaps not, they have felt like that it was right to let two people the same sex marry. But I will tell you this, no, even if the laws say it's okay, it is not a sanctified marriage. It can't be. It is unbiblical. So therefore, it can't be sanctified. So the first rule that he says is, is it biblical. That's how we know if something is sanctified, and that requires work. You have to study. You have to cut straight in order to figure that out. Number two, pray for power, he said. You check Scripture, and then you pray. Notice what that verse says. He said, things are sanctified by the Word of God and prayer. So not only do we put the effort into studying God's Word, but we ask God for His power. We need God's strength to live a sanctified life. How does sanctification happen? This is a good 
thing to write down. I don't know if we have this on the PowerPoint or not. But sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit who prompts and energizes human effort. Let me say that again. That's a good sentence to write down because it really describes pretty much the intent of the message today. What is sanctification? It is the work of the Holy Spirit who prompts and then energizes human effort. The Holy Spirit works through means. Now, positional holiness, as opposed to practical holiness, positional holiness is instant the moment I get saved. But practical holiness is hammered out. We're under construction. And we slowly, we slowly, uh, like peeling an onion, we become what God wants us to be. Uh, positional sanctification is imparted to us. Positional uh, or practical uh, sanctification is something that we work out. We all know the story of Lazarus in Scripture getting, uh, he dies, he's the brother of Martha and Mary. He is absolutely dead. Then Jesus comes along and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes out of the grave. But he's all wrapped in grave clothes. Slowly they unwrap the grave clothes. It is a temporary raising from the dead. But it's a wonderful symbol. And it's also a tremendous example of salvation. In Ephesians we are told that we are dead in trespasses and sins. And unless God, his power raises us, we can't be saved. Now, Lazarus comes forth, but after he comes forth, there's a gradual unwrapping of grave cloths. The truth is, after we get saved, many of us have old, dead, stinky grave cloths on us, and we have to unwrap those. We have to unwrap, and sometimes it takes other people to help us. Lazarus had time to get sanctified. Alexander the Great's army was advancing on Persia. At one critical point in the advancement, his uh, troops appeared to be defeated. The soldiers had taken so much plunder from previous campaigns that they became so weighed down. Alexander saw what was happening and he commanded to take all the spoils, throw them into a heap, and to burn them. The men complained bitterly. I mean, this was the, all the things that they had taken. But soon they saw the wisdom of what happened. And that's exactly what happens. We, as we go along in life, we gather all this uh, plunders. But we've got to let go of that so that we can lay aside those weights and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God works through the responsibilities that we take in Scripture. Here is a great quote about sanctification. And I know this one is on the PowerPoint. Please put it up. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and makes the child of God like the Son of God. Amen. That is sanctification right there. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and makes the child of God like the Son of God. The process of sanctification then is not dependent upon also only receiving the Word, but responding to the Word. 
I remember the confusion in my own mind 40 plus years ago. I was a very young, uh, excited Christian. I had just shared with a veteran Christian how much I wanted to grow. Specifically, I wanted to be used by God. I wanted to be a soul winner. The well-meaning Christian felt it necessary to remind me, now be careful, you don't want to do any works in the power of the flesh. It seemed like a little bit of cold water and I moved on, and, but strangely I felt a little bit discouraged because I knew that I wanted to get out there and do something for God. And it seemed like I was called to put some effort into my Christianity. Over the years, I would talk to different people, especially in those early days, and it seemed like people would very nervously say something like, well, that's good, young man, but make sure that, you know, you don't do it in the power of the flesh. Strange, really. It seems like over the years, I've noticed in the Christian world that for many people, it seems to be it's either grace or it's effort. There's no way to balance those things. Over the years, I've come to realize that popular theology only gives us two choices about the, uh, the putting together the grace of God and the human effort. The first uh, choice is, it's all about grace, so relax. These are quick to remind us we can't earn salvation, which is true. And if you're putting any effort into your Christianity, then you better be careful because you could fall into works righteousness. The second group says, it's all about effort, so you better get busy. And for anybody that stands up, talks about the free uh, forgiveness of God, they look at them very suspiciously, like, what are you talking about here? I've seen people over my Christian life swing between these two extremes. One season, they're working with a cloud over their head like they're never good enough, and the next, they're shrugging at everything spiritual abandoning every Christian discipline in the name of grace. I've seen people fly by me on the, out on the freeway especially. <laughs> I'm going just a little too slow for them. And they're riding my bumper and finally they zip by me. And uh, I notice they kind of wave their hand with a one finger a little bit and then they, they go right on by me invariably. I don't know how many times I've seen somebody do that. And on the back of their bumper, it says, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. I'll tell you what, the fact is I have this feeling like following Jesus is more than just being forgiven. I think we ought to have a life that is sanctified. I started a very friendly conversation with a man on the golf course. After a few moments, he told me his name was, well, they called him Cheeseburger. Within a few moments, he was bragging to me about all the Jack Daniels he's drank, and he was 45 and proud of that, but he was looking for a 20-something young gal. And he knew he could get her because he was, and he said, look at this, he was showing me how strong he was. I asked him what he did for a living. He said, I work on the railroad, and he said, uh, what about you? I said, well, I'm a pastor. Immediately he said, oh, blankety blank. <laughs> he quickly apologized, 
Some have told me before, I don't look, you don't look like a pastor. You look normal. And uh, he didn't say that. But I assured him, I said, cheeseburger, I don't have any. I uh, had no interest in judging you about your life. I'm, I'm a sinner just like you. I've been just been forgiven by Jesus. Oh, he said, pastor, I know all about that. He said, I've accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. I looked at him and thought, you not only just said that, you said it the right way. And uh, he said something to the fact, uh, we're forgiven and forgiven forever. Now, look, I am not trying to judge Cheeseburger, but uh, the fact is, you just got to wonder about this. I mean, is our salvation just being saved and that's it? Or does it mean a changed life? And I think that often happens in the minds of Christians when they talk about sanctification. They seem to kind of ignore the fact that God wants us to put effort into our salvation. I love what one author said when he, one Christian author that really helped to nail it when he said this, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. That's a great way to say it. Nobody wants to earn and nobody can earn their salvation, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't put effort. Earning is an attitude. Effort is a spirit-inspired action. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, please. We looked at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13 in one of our uh, sermons over the last couple of weeks, but I want you to go back one verse because I think this shows you exactly what this is talking about. Verse 12. Let's all read it out together if you would, please. Ready? Begin. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, did you catch those two phrases? Verse 12. Work out your salvation. You can't work out something until you have it. Once you have salvation, work on it. You're a work in progress. But don't think that it's only you that does it. Verse 13, for it's God that works in you. Yes, you should work on your salvation. But no, it's not just you alone. It's you and God. You can't do it alone. But it will not be done for you. God's grace and our efforts is what God requires for us to keep our sanctification growing. Now, when we talk about God's grace, let me give you a working definition here this morning because the word grace is just all over the map for so many people. The word grace in our working definition is this. It is God's strength. God's strength. That really is what it is. It's technically, it comes from the Greek word charis, which means a gift but it is God's grace. It's a gift of power, a gift of strength. Someone says leniency, that's, that's grace. No, that's an that's a, uh, English uh, definition of maybe what having grace would be. But it's not a biblical definition. It's not tolerance. That's not grace. It's not indulgence. Well, we just believe in grace. We, you know, uh, we let people just live in sin. That's not grace. Grace is God's strength. So with that 
working definition, let me give you the four levels of sanctification. Level number one is no grace, no effort. That kind of a life will bring shame. These have the sense that you must earn your salvation and you must earn your sanctification, yet sadly they have little desire to do so. And so any desire they do have, they drown out often with worldly activities or even religious works. Esau is a great example of someone who has no grace and no effort. As a child growing up in the 1960s, one of the treats of my yesteryear remembrances was when we visited Yellowstone. Yellowstone was perhaps one of the most amazing of all national parks. I can remember driving right up there, all those geysers and bears were everywhere. In fact, you could actually roll down your window and a bear would come up and take a sandwich or whatever you had in your hand right out of your hand. Later on in the years, I heard that they stopped allowing people to feed the bears because the bears were glad to take the food along with the hand or whatever else that was there. And it was also changing their diet and they were getting very sick. And so it was endangering their habitat. I read that they actually took the bears, took them up to a high altitude and uh, wanted them to go back to their original normal diet, which is berries and things like that. However, unfortunately, the bears had gotten so used to this entitlement that some of them even died. Now, I think that's the picture to me of the lives of many believers in Christ. For too many, they have so fed on the things of the world, they've gotten so used to it, they have no appetite for higher ground. And God said, look, you need to live a different life. And when people have no effort and they have no grace, their life is just a shamble, and it's often a rebellious life. I read about a little boy who behaved openly and proudly. His mother thought of a very safe but unique punishment. She put him in her clothes closet. She said, you stay in there and you be alone for a while. After a while, she got concerned because he was very quiet. And so she walked up to the closet and said, what are you doing in there? He said, well, I have spit on your dress. And then I spit on your shoes. And then I spit on your coat. And I'm just waiting for more spit. <laughs> And you know, sad to say, there are people, I'm afraid, who are just doing that same thing. They're just, they are not living for God, and they're just waiting on more spit to just contaminate everything else that's around them. They have no grace, no effort, sadly, live a life that's just a, a shameful life. Then there are those who have all effort, number two, but no grace, and this equals pride. Because when someone gives all that effort but never depends upon the Lord, eventually they feel like they deserve certain things. Pride sets in. Phariseeism, the Old Testament or the Old Testament and New Testament group that uh, were so proud of their sticking to the minutia but, uh, and their man-made things but not doing the main things. And that's what happens. So often they miss the bigger point and they settle for something that is cheap. And we're doing, when we're doing everything ourselves and not depending on God, we're going to end up with a cheap level of Christianity. Growing up, uh, we used to put maple syrup on our pancakes. We didn't eat them a lot. It always made my stomach feel funny, that maple syrup. One day someone said, you know, we'll probably 
it is the fact that you're not, it's not real maple syrup, it's just colored sugar water. I said, what? I said, what is maple anyway? He said, well, maple is actually comes from a tree. I said, really? Later, I learned a little bit about it. These trees, these maple trees are tapped and there's a bucket that they hang under that tap and out drips this rich sap. On a good day, an average tree will actually maybe come up with a gallon of this, uh, this sap out of the tree. Then as all the buckets are filled, they'll take those buckets and pour them into a big open, um, big open pot and then they'll fire it up. It goes through several heating processes, but it takes about 40 gallons of this sap in order to be reduced, and then they, it gets kind of brown after a while, kind of a, a little a smoky, burnt taste, and then it gets sweet, it gets wonderful, but it takes a lot of work. And you know, that's kind of like the Christian life. It takes a lot of God's hand to make us into a beautiful, sweet, beautiful, something that actually is not just this cheap sugar water. God wants to have a part in that. That sugar water is not going to turn out unless God has a hand, unless somebody does some work there. It is uh, a time when we need God's help. And then there's a third level and that it's all grace, but no effort. And that equals unfruitfulness. If we never put any effort into our faith, will become unproductive. People say, well, I don't want to do anything in the flesh. Well, you know what? I don't think uh, you're any danger of uh, serving God in the flesh. You know, if somebody, if you're out giving somebody food and they're poor and they're hungry, I don't think they care if you're in the flesh or you're in the spirit. Amen. Someone said, well, I wouldn't want to win anybody to the Lord and be in the flesh. Well, I got this feeling that I think God will forgive you if you win somebody to the Lord and you're in the flesh. Don't worry about if you're in the flesh. Just go out there and serve the Lord. This is the plight of the younger brother in Jesus' parable. He knew he had an inheritance. He knew it was all his, and he squandered it. He made no effort to live a fruitful life. In Scripture, unfruitful Christians are called children. Children are wonderful, but they need to grow up. This is a particularly dangerous and appealing to the modern Christian. I believe the modern church is stuck in this little place right here. They are all grace and no effort. It is convenient Christianity. Sanctification to them is legalism. But the fact is they become fruitless. I mean, anything that sounds like, well, you know, I don't want to do this or I don't want to do that because, you know, I don't have to. I'm under grace. And we, around this property, we have all kinds of trees. I mean, dozens and dozens of varieties. One of the varieties we have are fruitless or ornamental pears. They look like a pear tree, but they have these tiny little, little things. They're pears, but they're little baby pears. They never mature. To me, that's what this particular Christianity is. It is ornamental Christianity. There's no fruit to it. They're just satisfied with being nothing. And then there's a fourth level, and that is all grace, all effort, working as though it all depends on me, praying knowing it depends on God. It is a fruitful life. That's what God wants us to do. It takes disciplined action to respond to the grace of God. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. 
Second Peter 1, 3 says, according as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Then, verse 5, God's power gives it to us. But verse 5, giving diligence. We should add to our faith virtue. God, out of his grace and mercy, gives us his power, his strength. But God says you ought to add to your faith virtue. Add to it. Then verse 8 of that same passage says, For these things, if they be in you and they abound, they shall make you neither to be barren or unfruitful. When we embrace this kind of an attitude, we feel like I don't deserve any of this good. Someone says, how are you doing? You should say, better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. I've been blessed. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't deserve it. That's the feeling of God's grace. It doesn't mean we shouldn't work for the Lord. It just means I don't know why God does it. Grace says this. Grace says, I deserve none of this. But God is doing it for me anyway because he loves me. Effort says, unless I take action, I despise God's grace and God's power will remain ineffective. To have God's grace but to not be diligent is to just presume upon the attributes of God. Really, it's just testing God. How do we become sanctified? By embracing grace and effort together. Let me give you four quick ways. Number one, I believe when you are confronted with your own weakness, cry out. Don't just put your head down and work harder. Are you stressed? Are you overwhelmed? Do you feel like you're burning out? Folks, that is a signal that things aren't right. Don't turn the warning light off. Cry out. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7, Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. Meaning, God, I need your help. I need you. When you're confronted with your own weaknesses, cry out. Don't just put your head down and say, I'm just going to work harder and it'll all work out, folks. That's the grace of God. That's when we need the grace of God. The second thing we should do is begin your day by writing out, journaling perhaps, or speaking to someone, or by praying out three things you are thankful for. What will this do? This will just say, it's God. It's God. Well, I'm a hard worker and I provide for my family. Trust me, if God ever decided to just allow your health to go away, you wouldn't be saying what a strong person you are. You'd be saying, God, heal me. Folks, the very fact that we can get up in the morning, it's God. Amen. It is God. If it weren't for God, we wouldn't be able to get up. Begin your day by just saying, God, I thank you. I don't deserve any of your gifts, but I thank you for this. I thank you for this. I thank you for that. Speak it out or maybe better pray it out to the Lord. There is a third thing, and that is this. Think of godly disciplines as a way to show gratefulness for the grace of God. Have you ever uh, listened to a sanctified professional athlete give his testimony, perhaps on national TV? Now these, no, you take someone like Tim Tebow, now, you can just look at the guy and know that God gave him a lot of natural gifts, amen? I mean, this guy is just one big old muscular dude. Now, I'm sure he's 
you know, worked out over the years and done his best with it. But the fact is, God just gave him some unbelievable natural talent. What is that? That's God's undeserved grace, right? But what has he done with it? He has put effort into that. He has put rigorous training. And when they interview them, he will say, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for all that he's done for me. And so because all that he's done for me, I'm going to give it my effort. I'm going to give it my best effort. I'm not going to just put aside those gifts that God gave me. God gave me gifts. I want to use them. And so then my works are just a way to show my gratefulness to God. Grace and effort go together. And then finally, learn how Christ-like character actually works. You say, what do you mean by that? When, when we're talking about having effort, we're talking about having effort into the way things are biblically done, which is often indirect. For example, Jesus said, love your enemies. Well, how do I love my enemies? Do I just decide, I'm going to love my enemy? How many think that's going to work? That's not going to work. That's direct effort. And those of you that are here know that that just doesn't work. So how do we then love our enemies? How do we put effort into that? By indirectly doing what God tells us to do. For example, God says, where your treasure goes, your heart goes. That's why God said, pray for those that do this to you, you know, do good for them. Actually, when you do something good in secret, the book of Proverbs says, you know, a gift in secret pacifieth anger. You know, there's all kinds of amazing things that can be done indirectly that take my effort, but show that through that, God's grace works. That's how effort and grace work together. It is often indirect. For example, we um, want to be like Jesus Christ. Well, I just want to be like Jesus. So uh, I'm going to try to be like Jesus every day. That's not how we learn to be like Jesus. We don't just say, I'm going to be like Jesus every day. Now, I, that's a good place, good place to start. Nothing wrong with that choice. But the way to be like Jesus is just read the Gospels. Memorize the Gospels. Meditate on the Gospels. That's what Paul said to the Corinthian church. He said, when we begin to behold something, we become like it because we see it. We, have you ever uh, been around somebody? Maybe, maybe you lived in Texas for a few years, and pretty soon you start telling everybody, hey, y'all. You came back home, hey, y'all. You just, whoever we're around, we're going to end up being like them. And so if you're just around in the Gospels, all of a sudden, you'll become like Jesus Christ. Sanctification is often an indirect result of an effort, which shows it's the grace of God. That's how effort and that's how effort and grace work together. It's God's power, yes, but it's my effort. It's all of God, yes, but it is a spirit-energized work that God uses to be, make me like the child of God. Sanctification isn't inactive. God doesn't do it all for us. Sanctification isn't hyperactive. We can't do it without Him. Let me say that again. Sanctification isn't inactive. God doesn't do it all for us. 
Sanctification is neither hyperactive. We can't do it without Him. Grace, which is simply God's power, God's strength. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He wasn't saying, by the leniency of God, I am what I am, or by the tolerance of God, I am what I am. He was saying, by the power of God, I have become what I am today. It is the power of God. Pastor Mike, last summer, who's, they're coming this coming week, they're excited about, not this week, but a week, but I remember him several times last summer saying, you know, God wants us to work. He wants us to put effort into it. It's not just all God. It's not just all Him. It's us cooperating with God. God's not going to just come along one day and just slap you upside the head and say, I am going to impart to you this Christianity and you're going to be this amazing person. God does not impart sanctification. He imparts justification, but, he, but we... It, sanctification is a process. It is a process of saying, God, I need you. I must have you. If I don't have you, God, I'm going to fail. I'm going to flop. But then it is putting forth our best effort. It is us trying to be the best we can. Let's, if you want to stop a critical tongue, I, don't, I think we ought to pray about it. But I think we also ought to make some effort. I remember reading about one father who just, he just knew that he just, he just always was saying critical things. I mean, he could just hardly ever say anything nice about his children, his wife. He just, he didn't know why. I just, he just had one of those kind of eyes that saw things and minds that kind of thought things. And he just was a critical person. He just, but he was also a good Christian. And he, he just so frustrated himself because he would just, he could just watch the face of his children just drop and he could just see he was just burdening his wife with so much bad vibes, you know. It was just, it was just ripping up his family. And he prayed about it, but it just, it, you know, the more it seems like the more he prayed about it, the more obsessed he came about it. It just wasn't working. Then one day he decided to do something, put some effort into it. So he went to a dear friend that he had, and he said, I want you to, I want you to, to pray with me about this thing. That's a good point. And he said, uh, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I, I don't know of any other way. I'm going to, I am go- this guy also loved his money. He was, a, he was a real frugal guy. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a quarter in a jar every time I say a critical thing. Now, nothing wrong with being a father who has to say negative things. That's, you know, we, we know that. We have a whole, a whole chapter of all that in my book on the home. But when it's negativity without a purpose, when it's just this hyperactive stuff, that's just not good. And so he said, I'll put a quarter in that jar, and then uh, when we get enough money as a family, we'll (laughs) we'll have pizza. (laughs) But he said, so he was determined not to just lose all of his money. He said, when he, I remember him telling the story, he said, after that first month, I don't know how many times we went out to pizza. But you know, it wasn't too long until that, and it wasn't too long until that prayer and the effort started really having an effect. It is not just God, and it's not just me. I can't do it without God, and God won't do it without me. He wants us to put effort into it. God said, draw nigh unto me, and I'll draw nigh unto you. He didn't say, I'm going to draw nigh unto you regardless of what you do. He said, no, you draw nigh unto me. I'll know you're serious. I'll draw nigh unto you. You've got to take that effort. 
That's how a person gets saved. God doesn't save people unless they make an effort, unless they cry out for God. All through Scripture, it is my effort, it's God's grace. My effort, God's grace. My effort, God's grace. It works together. One can't do it without God. The other won't do it without man. That's the way it works. Sanctification is a process where the Spirit of God energizes the the, the Word of God and makes a child of God like the Son of God. And that's what He does for us. Sanctification changes us by the power of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. God changes us. I read a powerful true story I'll close with this morning, and I want to relate to you. Tess, a precocious eight-year-old little girl, one day heard her mom and dad talking in a very serious and somber tone about her little brother, Andrew. She didn't understand everything, but she got the gist. Her little brother was very, very sick. And they as a family were completely out of money, no way to go to the doctor and do anything about it. Only an expensive surgery would save his life. She heard her dad say to her tearful mother, only a miracle can save Andrew now. Tess ran to her room, pulled out a glass jar from his hiding place in her closet, poured out all the change on the floor and counted it very carefully. Then she put the change back in the jar and put the jar under her arm, slipped out the door, ran down to the Rexall drugstore six blocks away. When she came in there, the pharmacist was talking to a man intently and at first didn't notice Tess. She stood there patiently for a while. Finally, she knew she just had to get his attention, so she took a quarter out of her jar and tapped on the glass counter. The pharmacist noticed her and said, just a minute, honey. After a moment, uh, he answered and she said, sir, I want to talk to you about my brother. He's really, really sick and something's going and wrong and growing inside of his head. And Daddy said, only a miracle can save him now. And then she said these precious words, sir, how much does a miracle cost? The man that the pharmacist was talking to actually was his brother. Well-dressed man, as it turned out, from Chicago, stooped down and asked Tess, what kind of a miracle does your brother need, sweetie? I don't know. I just know he's really sick, and Mommy says he needs an operation, and my parents can't pay for it, so I want to use my money. Well, how much do you have? Asked the man. One dollar and eleven cents. He took hold of her hand and said, Take me to where you live, and let's see what kind of a miracle you need. This man, he was the noted neurosurgeon, Dr. Carlton Armstrong. He went and listened to the parents talk and then volunteered to operate on little Andrew. The operation was successfully completed without any charge, and it wasn't long, a few weeks, until Andrew was home doing great. Her mom later said, that surgery was a miracle. And then said, I just wonder how much that would have cost. And then Tess smiled, and she knew exactly how much a miracle would cost. One dollar and eleven cents. And the, 
and the graciousness of a great doctor. I read that story and I just had to realize that that's a great story of sanctification. It's all God, but it wouldn't have happened had not a little girl put some effort forth. It's all God, but it's us too. Grace and effort work together. They're best friends. Would you bow your heads with me, please?